Babies having babies is bad, but what about puppies having puppies? All rivers are born lazy. You'd lose a lot of money betting against fruit. Fangs are the sharpest teeth. How come no one dislikes trash in the ocean? Get out of here with your edgy dolphin facts. Redwood? More like tall wood. Sequoia? I hardly know ya. You'll be sad fireflies are gone when you can't see anything at night. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 20th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent. And what you're hearing is no mistake. Oh no, I assure you, this is all highly intentional. Which, think about it. What are the odds that something like this could be recorded, edited, rendered in the proper format, and posted on iTunes on accident? How many millions of years would it take a hundred monkeys in a room with podcasting equipment to randomly produce even one episode of Out of All Doors? Listen, if we were only talking about, say, one segment of Jason and Casey fly around the many universes, then yeah, I'm guessing the monkeys would probably only need six months. But an entire episode? I'm sorry, I just think it'd take those monkeys at least ten years to accidentally make the battery music alone. So yes, this is not a mistake, it's intentional, and our intention is to create a podcast about the outdoors for the people who love it, by the people who love it with some other people who love it, because of the people who love it, but, admittedly, without some other people who love it, and, indeed, in spite of some people who love it. Listen, a lot of people said we'd never make it to 20 episodes. They laughed at the very idea of us making it to 20 episodes. Well, they are laughing now. Not about that, anyway. I mean, it's not like I think us getting to 20 episodes completely robbed them of their ability to laugh at anything. But, yeah, we had our share of doubters and we had our share of haters. I'm not going to be able to name any names or give any concrete specifics because those are mostly assumptions I'm making retroactively in order to make a seem more accomplished. I mean, somebody named Lil Hoots did give me a bad review on my Bedtime Stories podcast because she said she could hear me swallowing my spit, among many other criticisms, so she must be so mad that Out of All Doors made it to 20 episodes, not that I ever think about her or mention her to anyone. But yes, a lot of people said we would never survive giving Squall a vastly reduced role, yet here we are. A lot of people said Jason or Cousin Ben or the Ghost would destroy the show from the inside, yet here we are. A lot of people said giving Grang his own segment would ruin the show, but I recognize that they were right in time to put a stop to it, and here we are. A lot of people said we'd never have more than 16 iTunes reviews, but here we are, sitting pretty at 17, although admittedly two of those are from Andrew. And a lot of people said I wouldn't devote an entire intro to gloating about making it to episode 20 in defiance of all the doubters and haters. Yet here we are. Let's begin, shall we? Hello, listeners and Eleanor. I'm pleased to say that I'm speaking to you from the relative comfort of a futon I now share with Peter, a man I met only yesterday on Craigslist. 
He's very kind, a real salt-of-the-earth type, and he mentioned this morning that I can stay in his apartment for as long as I'd like. Not two days ago, I was digging a new hole under the evergreen tree to bury the garbage I'd accumulated over the winter. With bears in the process of dehibernating, I thought it best to rid myself of any spare fountain cups, french fry wrappers, and to-go bags. I'd only just broken through the dirt when, not 200 yards away, a black Ford Explorer veered off the frontage road and headed toward my camp. I'm not exactly sure how they found me, but I suppose the Canadian wilderness is considerably more rugged when you have to walk everywhere. I'd become quite the survivalist, but I'm ashamed to say the chase ended rather quickly. Two men jumped from the Explorer, and as I turned to run, I twisted my ankle in what would have been the garbage hole. The men tackled me to the dirt, locked me in handcuffs, and shoved me into their vehicle, where I was blindfolded and gagged. In retrospect, I probably should have suspected foul play, but in the heat of the moment, I can't say the thought ever crossed my mind. The prospect of spending the rest of my life in prison left me unable to breathe, as if, in a way, I'd been handcuffed and gagged by fear. When they finally removed the blindfold, I was sitting in a Tim Hortons off-exit 214. And there, at the very same table, sat all of my friends. Don, Don's lawyer, Don's lawyer's friends with whom he plays softball, the couple at the apartment complex who blamed me for killing a bird, and the two men who apprehended me not an hour before. Using his considerable connections, both in the States and in Canada, Don had apparently arranged a situation not dissimilar to the plot of the game, starring Michael Douglas, wherein a wealthy investment banker gets a strange gift from his brother, Sean Penn. If memory serves me correctly, Mr. Douglas finds that he's at the center of a staged murder conspiracy. To be fair, Don's told me about the movie several times, but he never actually let me borrow the DVD. In short, and according to Don's side of the story, there had never even been a trial. The charges, court proceedings, and subsequent manhunt had all been arranged and orchestrated by Don. The winter I spent in the forest was, in fact, an unforeseen consequence of Don's plan. But he is sure, upon reflection, that it must have built some character. That in hiding for months, beneath the frigid shade of an evergreen, I learned to appreciate all of life's minor miracles. To that end, it's good to know that people care about me. And I'm sure in the coming months, I will look back on this time fondly. Yes, I lived on cold french fries, just 200 yards away from a Canadian highway, losing in the process my job, my apartment, my glasses, and almost four and a half pounds, but there's a lesson in there somewhere, and I hope to fall upon it soon. For now, I'm just happy to be in my new home, here on this futon with Peter, who thinks it's funny that we both have the same sized feet. I guess, in a way, I think it's a little funny too. Please tell Eleanor I say hello. Love, Harrison. The truth is, I'm a bird. Although what I'll tell you next might make that hard to believe. You see, from a young age... 
I began training myself to hold my breath for long times. Don't know what started this passion. Once I started, I couldn't stop training. The physical requirements and mental control. I can't think of another discipline that combines the two in such a way. Not to mention, it's a free hobby. When I turned 16, my family and I were all captured. From my cage, my hobby grew into my world. While I was raised to feel gratitude towards those who offered me food, I somehow felt as if my breath holds were a protest and even imagined it being a private revenge against my jailer. Isn't it funny how we do that? On quiet nights, how we picture the simple thing we've always been good at, just being what's needed to save the day? I don't think we get that from being raised by Hollywood, but rather I think it's something that the motion pictures got right about us and were smart enough to pass on. Gosh, I can't believe that's what I'm thinking about and what's likely my final minutes. You see, today they took me in my cage down into the mine shaft. While they were looking around with their headlamps and testers, I smelled something and I knew it wasn't good when it made my feathers go numb. I flashed the boss a huge smile with my beak, and without blinking an eye, I held my breath. I seemed fine, so they thought nothing was wrong, as they kept searching for their special medals. As I held my breath one by one, they dropped. Of course, when my jailer dropped my cage, he spent his last effort glancing my way to see if I was still alive. Not out of concern, but an arrogant disbelief that he missed my collapse. But I wasn't collapsed in the least bit. There I was, wide-eyed, with the biggest stinking grin this old beak has ever smiled. And I'm, I'm talking halfway around my head from one ear to the other. I gave a little hop to rub it in that I brought him down. Of course, chuffed as I was to bring all the miners down, the fact remained that I was trapped in that cage and the clock was ticking. I broke out a pen and a paper and began writing this letter to you. While there are many sound bites about deathbeds, this letter speaks for itself and that I've sought to live on through a quickly written chronicle about my own life. Like my own burning to breathe, I also feel the pressing to avoid being the villain of my final moments. Be my audience, God, man, or bird, I know that I just caused many deaths that I didn't have to, and that I can't think of anything among that that would have helped me escape. But their dying is what trapped me here. My dying caused their dying, and their trapping me caused their dying. When I introduced myself to you, I told you it might be hard to believe I'm a bird, and now you might agree I might be something much more, or I might be something much less. I just lost a minute trying to lay an egg, but could not. What's that in the mist? A man is holding his breath and sprinting toward me. I know I must control my excitement to conserve my air, but I'm over the moon. He, he sees me. And I see my future and hope. I'm the saint. It's difficult for me to read you this letter 
As you may have gathered, I was holding my breath, running through the cave, and saw the one survivor fall down, pen and paper still in his little hands. I ran out just as fast with his cage in my arms, and, once out in the clean air, tried to resuscitate him. While he was still warm, deep down, I knew he was cooked. <sighs> when I read his letter to myself, I was torn. He wrote his final wishes in a panic. His intent seemed to be to be remembered as a decent bird responding to an unwinnable situation. But in the same letter, he volunteered his guilt. I had to figure out how to respond by tonight, and I responded to my own difficult situation by simply asking what would I want done if it were me. <sighs> Nobody knows my true nature like Adam and the out-of-all-doors listeners do from the inside out. So in my living act of compassion, I opted to share the bird's true heart with you, Adam, and the out-of-all-doors listeners to judge whether or not the bird wanted you to judge him, and of course, whether or not you would judge him or yourself in the way that he would want you to judge this should this contingent ju judging occur. We die. We find ourselves on top of and surrounded by puffy clouds. We're wearing white robes, we have two or three halos apiece. The streets are paved with gold and we're strumming tunelessly upon our harps. We are at peace, perfect peace, and somewhere nearby a chorus of beautiful voices fills the pure air with purer song. Why, could it be? Is this really? It is, it must be. We have entered the Battery. The bat that you saw when you were six. You were standing on a curb and considering a career as a curb maker when the bat flew into your field of vision and you saw it. You clapped your hands as audibly as you could manage and the bat seemed to disappear. Had you clapped it out of existence? No, the bat just flew around the corner of a building. You probably missed it because you probably blinked at the force of your own childish clap. Blinks came so easily when you were young. The bat that you saw when you were six and a half. On its back it carried a great burden, a stack of uncharacteristically heavy leaves. Where was it taking them? You couldn't imagine. Curious as you were, you couldn't recognize curiosity in others of your own species, much less species other than your own. The bat that you saw when you somehow still hadn't turned seven. The bat saw you first and you barely caught it out of the corner of your eyes it flew away, trying to avoid your clueless gaze. You knew less than you should have at that age. That bat, though, you would see again under different circumstances, and also you wouldn't know it was the same bat until now. But this time, the first time you saw it, you wondered if the bat was headed wherever it was headed because it knew something that you didn't. Six was a rough age. We all have a lot to learn at six, but man. The bat you saw when you finally had your seventh birthday. You left an invitation to your party in a belfry known to be frequented by some of the area's finest and most influential bats. And then later, outside at the picnic table in your backyard while you were tearing at your hair in rage over your inability to blow out the trick candles on your birthday pie, 
A bat flew past and you wondered if it had gotten your invitation and decided to make a brief appearance or if it just happened to be flying by. If it would have flown by even if you'd never given it an invitation, even if it wasn't your birthday, even if you'd never been born, even if the human race had gone extinct centuries ago for reasons no one would ever determine because all the scientists who would have been interested in determining the reason for the mass extinction would have had to have been descendants of the people who went extinct. And you know no bats would bother to investigate. The bat you saw on the day when your parents discovered that your birth certificate was inaccurate and you were actually still six and would be for another four months. The light spirit with which the bat flapped past you contrasted dramatically with your feeling that you were doomed to be six forever. That when the four months had passed, some new discovery concerning your origin would be made and your seventh birthday would be snatched away from you yet again, continually moved just out of reach destined to be forever closer but never there, a living embodiment of Zeno's dichotomy paradox. Not that you had any idea who Zeno was, what a dichotomy was, or what a paradox was. You were only six, after all. The bat that ignored your petulant insults, knowing, perhaps, that you were only lashing out because you wanted to be seven but were still only six. The bat that flew past when you were about to tell a group of tough seven-year-olds that you were seven too, but upon seeing the bat, you were filled with guilt and you admitted your true age, which was six. You did not want the bat to hear you lie. The bat that flew across the face of the full moon as you were whispering a wish to wake up in the morning to find that you had turned to seven during your sleep. And when you saw that bat silhouetted against the moon, you felt that anything was possible. And that if anything was possible, then sure, you could wake up the next day and find that you had turned seven, but you could also wake up and find that you'd turned five. You could wake up and find that you'd become horribly combined with your own comforter. Your molecules blended with the molecules of the comforter so that you'd become a half-blanket, half-boy creature. And you only got the comforter last year, and it was brand new then, so in this new form, if you were to average out the ages of all the parts of you, you'd be even younger. So, scared, you bit your tongue to halt your whisper in mid-wish and you went home to bed, resigned to waking up in the morning as a mere six-year-old. The bat that dangled over your head, upside down and silent as you read with horror a book about the solar system wherein you learned that if you were to travel to a distant planet, it would take many times longer for you to turn seven due to the vastly increased distance that planet would have to travel to make a complete circuit around the sun. But, reading on, you realize that if you were to travel to Venus, or better yet, Mercury, their shorter orbits would bring your seventh birthday much faster. Leaping to your feet and disturbing the bat's sleep, you ran home to beg your father to take you to Mercury on an immediate vacation. Your father then explained the impossibility of your request, but added, perhaps unnecessarily, that he wouldn't do it even if it was not only possible, but easy. The bat that you saw hiding atop one of the blades on the ceiling fan in your bedroom on the night before you were to celebrate your true seventh birthday. The bat that you saw hovering and perhaps even glowing faintly in the corner of your hospital room, visible as a shadow beyond the heads of the doctors and nurses, bending wide-eyed over your prostrate body. How long, you croaked. The medical professionals looked at one another. You've been in a coma, the shortest nurse finally said, for one year and one day. Yesterday was your eighth birthday. But what about seven, you asked? I never got to be seven. I'm sorry, one of the doctors said, but seven is gone. You looked to the bat. You'd seen this bat before, but you didn't know it then. But, said another nurse, a male nurse, there is something else. While you were asleep, your body combined with the bed sheets, the molecules they mingled. We've never seen anything like it before. 
You kept your eyes on the bat, only on the bat. One more thing, said another doctor, a woman with silken hair. Your brain is this thing where it tricks your eyes into seeing bats where there are none in moments of emotional distress. And also your parents moved to Mercury without you, the planet. But you didn't listen to her. You just looked at the bat even harder, harder than you'd ever looked at anything in your life. And the doctors and nurses melted away. The hospital room faded. The bed sheets dissolved out of your body. The sun rose up from the west and set in the east, and you were seven. Hold on a second. Harps, golden streets, halos, white robes, lambs and lions getting along, angelic choirs. Heck, we've all got wings. But if this is the battery, where are all the bats? Have any of us seen one bat since we've been here? No? Then this isn't a battery. We were deceived. If this isn't the battery, then we're out of here. We're coming back to life. Try and stop us. The force of our righteous indignation reveals the deception perpetrated upon us. The illusion falters and we wake up in the dirt pit where our bodies have been dumped. We were not in the battery, but we believed we were, so thoroughly that for a few minutes, even in the presence of nary a bat, we were in the battery. In our hearts. But we figured it out, and although this death pit may not be the battery either, we are alive, and we will find the battery again. We leave the battery. experiment he's been working on for a couple of weeks. Yeah, like what? Well, he says he's still working on the temperature to bean paste ratio, but he's got some sort of burrito and basil corn and flour hybrid chip that he's close to finishing. Outstanding. Well, let's go talk to him after we're done recording the show. Okay. Okay, here we go. Let's see. Fire up the mic. Okay, stupid thing. Why isn't the software working? Okay. Request startup clearance. Temps and pressures are in the green, and we're recording. All right. Okay, here we go. Okay, here we go. Hello, listeners. It's time for the one and only podcast segment on nature photography anywhere around regarding the dawn. And since it's the only one... That makes it everyone's favorite podcast about outdoor photography. Exactly. <laughs> Number one, baby. With a bullet. Okay, folks, let's get right into it today. We have a subject which will be of great use to every one of you ex- aspiring outdoor photographers. Communication through photography. What does it all mean, Ben? I don't know. What is, it, what is he trying to say? Beats me. Seriously, what is he thinking? No clue. And what's up with that tree? Has this ever happened to you guys? Are you tired of people just staring at your photographs and not even getting the first line of your manifesto? 
Do you wish people could just download the PDF right into their brains so you don't have to worry about misinterpretation of your laser focus, carefully crafted artistic vision? Well, now you can, because Dwayne and Cousin Ben are here to hook you up with a photography technique that will allow you to surgically install a USB port in the back of your audience's head. Ew. Forehead? Gross. Metaphor, Dwayne. Oh. Anyway, dear listeners, let's let's just get started. Now, I want all of you to do me and Dwayne a favor. I want you to look at your photos. Go on. Look. Now look at your sister Tara's photos. Now look at your landlord Earl Ray's photos. Look at his. Go on. Now look extra hard at Cindy, the DMV clerk's photos. Did you see? See what? Hold on. We'll get there. Uh, Oh. Well, did you see it, listeners? Of course you didn't. I played a trick on all you folks out there because you know what you are, don't you? You are listeners. You're not lookiners. What? That's right, listeners. I tricked you into trying to do something that you cannot do. Looking. Uh, Ben, I think you... You already know how to listen, but you didn't realize that's what you needed to be doing when you were interacting with photography. I think you have your verbs all scrambled, dude. (laughs) No, Dwayne. No. No. I, I do not. Communication, Dwayne. That is what we are talking about today. We are going to help the listeners enunciate clearly with their photos. Well, you sure aren't doing much of that right now. What the heck are you talking about? Listeners, I want you to pay attention to Dwayne. What? Dwayne is pretending to be ignorant to illustrate how confusing this can be for many of the non-initiated. Yeah. (laughs) Now, everyone, and Dwayne the Dunce... Hey, hey, watch it. uh, Now, what are you trying to do with your art? Communicate. And what is the point of even trying to make art if the message you intend to send doesn't come across as clear as the nose on Dwayne's face? Pushing. So here's the bottom line. Did you hear what the photographer was trying to tell you in those photos that you listened to earlier? Probably not, because not all photographers are good at communication. Especially not that clerk, Cindy. She's the worst. So, to show you how this should work, I have set up an example. I have here two photos by the late, great Ansel Adams, world-famous lover of the outdoors and 29th-level wizard black belt photographer assassin. Now, I'm going to show these to Dwayne, and he's going to tell you what the photographer was trying to communicate. Uh, I I am? Sure. Go on. It's easy. Uh, okay. Here they are. Okay. First one has a tree and some dirt. Um, okay. Well, uh, that tree... Well, I think Ansel was trying to say that uh, trees are, are strong and... Wrong! Uh, what? Try well, again. You... Try again. Next one. Here, this one has some rocks and clouds. Go, go, go. What? Uh, but Quick, I... don't think. Just tell me what it says. Uh, I, the, the great spirit um, is in nature. <clears throat> Wrong. Hey, what, just, what, what the crap? See, listeners, doesn't Dwayne sound exactly like your ignorant and stupid relatives and friends who should never be allowed to look at art or even talk to you about it? Uh, yeah. Uh, that, yeah. <clears throat> Let's hear it for Dwayne. Woo! So... Listeners, let's look at those photos and what they were actually saying. Number one, the tree and the dirt. This was Adam's scathing movie review for the 1977 hit film Star Wars. 
He wasn't a big fan of sci-fi. What? I know. What in the world could possibly be bad about Star Wars? The guy had terrible taste in movies. Uh, And then number two. Well, this one is actually just his grandmother's recipe for jalapeno goulash that he just didn't want to misplace. Okay, how how could that possibly be goulash? What what, what are you This is a great question, Dwayne. I'm so glad you asked. All right, listeners. We will now demonstrate the exact technique you can use to make sure, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that your intended message is clearly and firmly communicated to your viewing audience through your fantastic nature photographs. Uh-huh. Once again, listeners, give it up for Dwayne the Dunce. Ben? Uh, anyway, the, the photo telegraphical method, or telegraphy for short, is just one of the many advanced techniques that you can use to communicate more effectively in your photography. It's very simple. You merely... Lock in your intended communication nice and tight into your photographic brain meats. And then, while concentrating very hard, you frame your subject in the camera viewfinder and snap! You got it. So, Dwayne here is going to do a real-time demonstration of the telegraphy method. Wait, no, yep. what? Yep, yep. Just uh, pick up your camera there. Oh, go on. Okay. Um, and I, I want you to concentrate. Turn it uh, on. Yeah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I want you to concentrate on some very specific images, concepts, thoughts, and then I want you to take a photograph. Yeah, I, I look. I don't know. I. Uh, it's fine, Dwayne. I'll coach you. It's fine. All right. So, like, like this. Yes. That's exactly what it looks like when you have a very specific thought locked into your brain meets. I don't know what it looks like, Dwayne. You tell me if you're doing it right. Well, I don't know. I've never done this method before. Look, it's, it's fine. Just concentrate and take a picture. That's all you got to do. All right. Fine. There. Okay. So let's have a look at your photo. Ooh, very nice. I see those bushes outside of my window there and some lawn beyond that and some very naturesque sky back there over the treetops. Great. So, let's see if I can read your true attempted communication now. Let's see. You were very angry and filled with rage, and I'm getting some seething hatred. No, no, no. Malice with some intent to do some shopping. No, bodily harm. Yep. Nope. What? Not even close. What? What do you mean? Of of course that's right. I got a very clear communication from your photograph. Rage, anger, malice. It's all right there. Sorry. Fine. What were you trying to communicate then? I was thinking about unicorns, Care Bears, and gummy worms. You were not. Yep. That's insane. There is no way. There is no way you were thinking about that. I bet you can't even name three Care Bears, you liar. Oh, Tenderheart Bear, Cheer Bear, Funshine Bear, Heart Song Bear, Harmony Bear. You know I don't know if any of those are real or not. Well, they are. You are lying just to make a mockery of this method. No, I'm not. Fine, fine. We'll do it again. Give me that. Let me... I'll take a photo, and I'll see if you can interpretate my art. Fine. Let's see. Uh, concentrate from the shot. Mm. There. Now, look at it. What do you see? Hmm. I'm getting a deep-running suspicious cynicism for all societal norms as they relate to, um, fruit-filled snack cakes, as well as, uh... A yearning for a return to clothes laundering by smashing pumpkins between two rocks? Well, I don't know why that didn't work before, because it seems to be working perfectly fine now. Okay, so that, that's it, listeners. That is how you use the, uh, the phototelegraphical technique, or telegraphy, to communicate more effectively through your photographs. 
So um, I guess just get to work flexing those brain meats, and maybe next time we'll be reading your manifestos on the cover of the magazines. That's all the time we have for today, so see you next time. Bye. See ya. Oh, okay. I think that one good. Let me see that one, too. <laughs> oh, I love that joke. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> right. Here. Oh, there you go. Oh, let's see. Uh, get out. Did Tom really say that? Yesterday. <laughs> He's a lunatic. Here. Oh, she's Regarding the dawn, regarding the dawn, regarding the dawn, regarding the dawn. Are we recording now? Grang, you realize every one of these appearances starts with you asking if we're recording, right? That's becoming your catchphrase. Are we recording now? Are we recording now? So, we're not recording? We are recording, but I'm telling you now, I'm not devoting 20 minutes of this episode to finding out the elaborate way in which you failed to get the login information for the Out of All Doors blog this time. Okay, well, if we're in a time crunch, we better get to my latest segment idea right away. All right, see, considering the time crunch, that's the exact portion of your monthly check-in that I'd advise cutting first. Well, that would be quite a mistake, Drent, because you haven't heard this segment idea yet. And once you have heard it, you'll be so glad you did that you'll wish you hadn't said that you wished you wouldn't. You don't have the login information, though, because if you did, I definitely would have heard about it by now. But you're not dead, so you must have escaped the Udavald somehow. Does that mean your raft actually worked? You know, it's funny you should bring up rafts, Drent, because that's very relevant to my new segment idea. You may recall that when we last spoke, I was in the process of building a raft so that I could pursue the laptop with the login information on it downriver, where it had been sent by the Udavalds because they believed it had cursed them with out-of-season mosquitoes. So that raft was almost finished when I got a great idea for a new segment for the podcast. In it, each month I use common household items to construct some kind of outdoor equipment. Snow skis, backpacks, rope, walking sticks, you know, stuff like that. It's called DIY REI. Okay, well, I, I must grudgingly admit that's actually a pretty clever title. Thanks, Trent. Yeah, it stands for Don't Invest Your Retirement and List Items. So, clever on accident. What, what does this have to do with your raft? Well, since I needed a raft anyway... I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to begin my new segment by abandoning the raft I was making out of logs and stuff and starting a new raft made entirely out of household items. You made a raft out of household items? Like what? I thought the Udavalds lived like some kind of primitive tribe. How many household items could they have lying around? Well, you're right, Drent. That was a problem. The Udavalds barely have houses, much less household items which is why I went to the store to purchase all the household items I would need for my raft. What? How did you have money? I thought Megan had blocked your access to the bank account or something. Well, yes, she did. But remember that I was an employee of the Udavald Original Outdoor Recordings Company, so I spent my paycheck on the household items I needed for my raft, which ended up being well over 100 ladles and a few dozen rolls of three-ply paper towels. So I smuggled all the items back to the woods just outside the compound, and I got to work. 
Grang, wait. I hate that I'm getting dragged into asking questions about the specifics of this obviously terrible segment idea, but first, of all the household items you could use for a raft, why would you make it, as it seems you have, mainly out of ladles? Well, they're the most buoyant of the spoons, Drent. Unless you count wooden spoons, but we'll put that to one side. A second, more pressing question is this. Isn't the whole point of making stuff out of household items that people don't have to go out and spend money on something, that they can just use stuff they already have lying around? Who has over a hundred ladles lying around their house? I don't know. Lots of people, Drent. People who collect ladles, people who run soup kitchens, people who rent storage space in their homes to soup kitchens, people who want to build rafts, people But what about all the people who actually exist and are therefore potential listeners to the podcast? Well, if they want to make the outdoor equipment out of household supplies like I do on the segment, then I guess they can just go to the store and buy those household supplies like I did. But if they're just going to go to the store and spend money anyway, why not just buy a raft? Drent, come on. Now that's a terrible idea for a segment, as you're so fond of saying to everyone. Not to everyone. So, so how did the raft turn out? Well, great. I lashed all the ladles together with strips of paper towels, and then I used the remaining rolls of paper towels along the edges of the raft to serve as padding for whenever I docked up at a pier. But I don't want to give the whole design away right now. I'll save that for the first episode of my segment. Really, maybe that would be better for the second Or maybe it's better that you never tell us any more about this. For now, why don't you tell us about how you used your raft to escape the Udevalds? Right. So anyway, my raft was looking great and was ready to whisk me away downriver in the night. With a full eight hours before my wedding to the chieftain's daughter was set to begin, I was well ahead of schedule. So I carried my raft down to the river, climbed aboard, and pushed off the bank and set out into the current. It sank, didn't it? What did? The raft, Grang, the one you just described building exclusively out of materials that rank among the least seaworthy things I can think of. Oh, yes, of course, the raft, the raft. Well, the three-ply paper towels were a mistake. Those are the most absorbent of all paper towels. And I think if I'd just gone with single-ply, I would have made it. But, unfortunately, the paper towels quickly absorbed a lot of water, which led the raft to sink rapidly from beneath me. It broke apart, and I got entangled in the mass of ladles. I couldn't tell which way was up, and pretty soon I lost consciousness. Now, I'm not entirely sure what happened after that, but I must have washed ashore somewhere near the compound and been found by members of the Udevald Original Outdoor Recordings Company, because when I came to, I was in the middle of the wedding ceremony. In fact, we were almost done. Wait, what? You woke up in the middle of marrying the chieftain's daughter? How did you get out of that? Well, it was a little too late to get out of that, actually. The ceremony was basically done. The only parts that were left were the parts where I gave her the ring and publicly declared my love for her and said my vows in a special matrimonial tape recorder. Well, all of my parts of the ceremony, basically. So I was kind of stuck. You married another woman? You're already married to Megan. Drent, please. It's fine. First of all, the marriage was just a traditional tribal ceremony. It's not legally binding in any way, and we didn't get a license or anything like that. And second of all, the customs really worked out in my favor this time, because as soon as the ceremony was over, my new wife was whisked away to the isolation shack, 
where she was required to spend two weeks before returning to me to consummate the marriage. While being observed by four Udavald original outdoor recordings regional managers. So I had plenty of time to go back out into the woods, find my original wood raft, and escape downriver under the cover of darkness again that very night. So you left your new bride in the isolation shack and you actually got away this time? The raft worked? Oh, yes, it worked like a charm. Although, unfortunately, the current isn't very strong around here, and the river is kind of shallow in some parts. So I keep running aground, and sometimes I have to get off the raft and drag it behind me. And also, I'm not exactly sure where the little raft that went down river ahead of me might have ended up, so I have to stop fairly often and check on the bank to make sure the computer isn't tangled up in the weeds there. So progress has been a little slow. Very slow. But even that was a blessing in disguise, because three days into my journey downriver, I realized that I'd forgotten all my sleuthing gear back at the Udevald's compound. So I had to pull over to the bank and walk back to the compound to retrieve it, once again under cover of darkness. But because of the slow current, the whole mishap only set me back four hours or so. So you walked in four hours what it took you three days to accomplish by rafting downriver. Well, technically I walked it in two. It took me four hours to get there and back. But regardless, now I've got my sleuthing supplies back in my possession, so everything's right on track. Well, that's a huge relief, obviously. I have to believe your magnifying glass is really going to speed up the time it takes you to scrounge through the weeds along the riverbank looking for a possibly cursed, almost certainly waterlogged laptop. Well... Yeah, it was actually a couple of weeks ago when I got the sleuthing gear back, and it hasn't really sped up the search much. But I do feel a lot more confident now that I'm being appropriately thorough. I haven't found the laptop yet, but I have found a few mysterious footprints and some strange markings carved on the trees. And then a couple of nights ago, while I was sleeping under some bushes near the river, I heard some people walking around in the dark. And when I woke up the next morning, I found a note that said, Come back or die, stuck to the raft with a knife. I really don't know whose raft they thought it was. Some other guy with a raft going downriver, apparently. You wouldn't think there'd be that many of us, but I suppose stranger things have happened. Grang, come on, that note was clearly meant for you. It sounds like some people from the compound are stalking you down the river. They probably realized you skipped out on your new wife. They're giving you a chance to go back so they don't make the chieftain's daughter a widow, but it sounds like they'll try to kill you if you don't turn around soon. No, I I seriously doubt that's the case, Trent. The arrows were a hunting mishap, nothing more than that. What arrows? Oh, someone was shooting a bunch of primitive arrows at some wild game, I suppose, but they were such a bad shot that many or all of the arrows missed the wild game, and they came flying out of the woods and nearly hit me. Grang, those were clearly warning shots. You've got Udavald original outdoor recordings employees on your tail. Well, not on your tail. If they're on foot, they're probably way ahead of you, lying in wait. Where are you, anyway? No, the river winds along the edge of a little town here. So I landed my raft and came into town, and now I'm sitting in an internet cafe. Well, uh, okay, now that you've got primitive assassins trying to kill you, I'm going to try to not get my hopes too high about you checking in next month. Durant, you're always so paranoid. No one is trying to kill me, least of all primitive assassins. You told me I was going to get killed last time we talked, and yet, here I am. 
Someone just shot an arrow at you, Grang. There's an arrow sticking out of that wall behind you. Hmm? Oh, yeah. The, the hunters around here really are terrible. I don't know what kind of wild game they could have even been shooting at here in town. Songbirds, I guess. I guess so. Bye, Grang. Bye. And now the outfit of a day with the Ghost Bat Queen. The outfit of a day is rain, soaking through your jean jacket as you run through an open field. You stop under a tall pine tree and sink down against its trunk to catch your breath. Didn't your mom say something about trees and lightning storms? Oh well. You inhale the smell of damp pine needles and listen to the steady rain. A drop makes its way through the branches above and lands on your forehead. An earthworm wriggles on the grass near your feet. What was it your mom used to say? April showers bring... Hey, just wanted to let you know, and Cayman wanted to let you know, that uh, we missed out on our hermit update with Cayman Bird last month because he got in touch with me just after the new episode had posted, but uh, I did have a somewhat illuminating, informative conversation with him this month, and so I'm presenting that here now. It is now time to check in with our intrepid young hermit correspondent, Cayman Bird, again this month to see if he has been able to make any sense at all of all this hermit strangeness. Cayman, thanks for joining us again. My pleasure, Adam. Well, Cayman, last time you had discovered a wide-ranging and long-running sham that had been foisted upon the general public that had us all believing that hermitry in general was about communing with nature, about solitude, about eschewing frivolity and luxury and convenience, and clearing one's mind from distraction via suffering and hardship, about philosophy or maybe even spirituality. But, in fact, you found that the roots of it all was, in fact pretending, acting, and a steady paycheck. Anything new for us this time? Well, uh, yeah, actually, I've been... I'd been struggling to uncover anything new, and I was still chasing shadows, looking for more clues about the disbanding of HAG, the Hermit Actors Guild, when I was contacted once again by Agent Scabies. They were clearly using some sort of voice modulator, as per usual, but... I managed to make out that they wanted me to go to the Manhattan Library. Manhattan? Uh, Manhattan, Kansas. Oh, oh, okay. So, since I didn't have any other leads at the moment, I went off to Kansas, got to Manhattan a little late, but I headed over to the library and I went inside. I stood around for a while and nothing happened. (laughs) So, since I was already there, I just decided to see if I could find anything hermit-related in their catalog. So it turns out that they keep the few hermit books that they have in their basement next to books on logic and ethics, some classic literature, and a lot of books that don't get checked out anymore. Yeah, that sounds about right. So this basement was amazing. It's a real tomb. Felt like Indiana Jones down there, just 
dust, cobwebs, piles and piles of amazing leather-bound tomes, but not organized very well at all. It took me ages to find the hermit books. It was such a mess that I didn't notice how late it had gotten until an hour after closing time. Apparently the librarians had forgotten to check and see if anyone was in the basement before they left. So as I got up to leave, I accidentally knocked over a pile of books. I nearly had a heart attack when somebody screamed behind me. And I turned around and saw to my great surprise that was Cyrus. Hermit Cyrus? Who you who you interviewed for us a while ago? That hermit who said he couldn't stand the sight of people's faces, but it turned out the reason he didn't like seeing people's faces was because those faces were always expressing disapproval at how irritating he was being? Yep, that's him, Adam. He was terrified because he was still blindfolded. And I guess he hadn't heard me when I was down there. But when he calmed down, he explained that he was now living in the basement of this library. So... So is he not a hermit now, or, or... Well, turns out that he considers himself a hermit still. Very much so, in fact. But somebody else had contacted him very recently, and he was very upset because he was informed that he was no longer a hermit based on where he was living. Wait, so who would care where Cyrus is living? I mean, other than the library staff, of course. Well, right, but... Cyrus insists that the library staff are very much unaware of his infestation of the premises. Uh, well, well, who then? Well, I had a hunch, Adam, so I asked Cyrus if it was Hag that had told him that he wasn't a hermit anymore, and Will's expression alone was enough to tell me that Hag is alive and well, Adam. They're still here, and apparently they've gone underground. Wow. And what followed was a very emotional and long story about how Cyrus had become lost and ended up in Manhattan while looking to make contact with a hag representative for some reason. He wouldn't tell me. He was still wearing his blindfold and he wasn't the most adept at navigating a city, so he ended up in the library and when he realized he was now inside with many people, he panicked and felt his way down to the basement. Well, after the library closed and he realized everyone was gone. He'd wandered back upstairs and he discovered running water and modern toiletries, a large DVD section, vending machines, all without any human contact. So long story short, he decided a climate-controlled lifestyle of hiding during the day and living it up at nights was just all right with him. (laughs) Well, yeah, that sounds great to me, too. And apparently, Hag didn't think that. So so Hag is just going around regulating hermit licenses now? Well, I pushed him on that, and after a lot of denial and rage and copious amounts of rocking and thumb-sucking, Cyrus finally opened up about how he became a hermit in the first place. Uh, let me guess. He was a failure as a productive citizen, so he gave up. Not, not exactly, Adam. Uh, it seems that years ago, he was a low-level tree pruner, that worked at a small pine tree preserve when he was approached by a friendly enough man who would start small conversations with him about nature and trees, solitude, human nature, technology, traveling, society, and arbitrary hygiene standards, which were his words, not mine. But eventually, this man gave Cyrus a book about hermitry, 
with explicit instructions not to show anyone else and to burn the book once he had finished it. So, so Cyrus's claim is that Hag is recruiting people into some sort of fake hermit lifestyle, but like a like a secret society elitist version of hermitry with some sort of fiercely protected tribal knowledge. That's what I've gathered from my sources. So I'm just trying to understand. So, so someone is going to the trouble to court and recruit gullible people to be hermits, but for what purpose? I mean. What could they possibly be trying to accomplish? And if it's really hag, why would an acting union from old Europe go to this kind of trouble when no one is paying the hermits to act these days? I mean, they hired a hermit scout. I can't make sense of it either, Adam. The more I find out about it, the more questions I have. But if Cyrus's recruitment is at all typical of how they run things, then it seems that hag hides their true origins and somehow entices these impressionable people to join them with promises of quiet contemplation and all the time they went to pick up seeds, sticks, and berries. Cyrus was even encouraged to explore his passion and spent his time working with pine trees. Huh, well, this is a lot to take in, but I, uh, I guess we should say goodbye for now and let you get back to it, Cayman. Thanks for the update, and be careful. This gets more bizarre every month. Thanks. I will be careful. All right, bye. Bye. These are the top five people you meet at an adventure race. Number one is the juggler. This man is here to do the adventure race while juggling, everyone. Not only is he out to compete in this incredible feat of athletic endurance, but he's going to do so while juggling. He combines an Olympic prowess with a spirit of fun, showing that he can compete and... Okay, um, jogger, I guess. What? Okay, uh, I guess he's not juggling at all, but just here to jog, uh, here to compete and have fun and, I guess, not take things too seriously. He's just going to jog the race, ladies and gentlemen, taking things at his own pace, a man after his own heart, marching, or jogging, rather, to the beat of his own drum. But, all right. I mean, look, what? He started juggling again. I mean, he, I guess he's a juggler. That is a juggler. There's no doubt in my mind that that is a juggler. Number two, the Neighborhood Rapscallion. With his dandy habits and aggressive hairdo, the Neighborhood Rapscallion has only come to the race to get up to his rascally stunts specifically with those in his tight-knit community. Expect witty pranks and salient barbs from this prancing raconteur, simultaneously the delight and the downfall of all the neighborhood men and women. Note, the Neighborhood Rapscallion does not engage with anyone outside of the neighborhood, nor does he participate in the adventure race. If you try to eavesdrop any of his japes, he will immediately shut down into an introverted shell of a man, so leave him be. He's here for his community! Number three is the Human Trebuchet. The Human Trebuchet is adventure racing's greatest nemesis. Taking advantage of an age-old loophole in the rules of adventure races that specifically doesn't mention trebuchet usage, the Human Trebuchet catapults himself from one section of the course to the next, flying over the racing, straining, grunting athletes below. While he occasionally hits a tree or obstacle and breaks limbs, rendering him unable to continue, the Human Trebuchet has won a large number of races, to the chagrin of most other racers. Number four is the Heartstopper. 
While he is well regarded for his dashing good looks and infectious smile, the Heartstopper earns his name for the frequency and intensity of his cardiac attacks during the adventure race. A full bevy of love-struck registered nurses follows him around in a specially designed 4x4 ambulance to give him loving jolts with their defibrillator, which is covered in sharpie hearts with his name in the middle. Finally, number five is Slick Too Slick Junes. Mr. Junes is an adventure race favorite who always shows up all slicked in water, sweat, sweet tea, baby oil, ginger ale, and sundry other liquids. He claims that the secret to winning an adventure race is lubrication, and he adheres to this credo by keeping himself abundantly wet throughout the entire race. He has a team of spritzers who keep him wet should he get even slightly less than soaked during the course of the race. Other racers have complained about slipping and sliding in the wake of Slick Two Slick's leavings, but he's unrepentant and only uses the opportunity to get all that much slicker. Just don't call him the otter. Otters are filthy, hideous beasts, as his most well-known phrase goes. But if you've ever wondered how sodden a man can get, just give Slick Two Slick Junes your attention. Thank you. Adam here. Uh, that's Earth One, Adam. I can't believe I feel I have to clarify that. Well, it's April, which means it's spring break, so Jason and Casey have taken this episode off to spring break across the multiverse, but they emailed me a special message from one of their vacation hotspots as a sort of check-in, so here is that. Bye, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. Um, so if I would have kept scrolling through the email thread, I would have seen this message from Jason, which says, sorry, attached wrong MP3, try this one. And then there's nothing attached to that email. So let's see, I, uh, I do have their trip itinerary, so I'll share that, I guess. You can imagine all of the wondrous and magical worlds throughout the multiverse Jason and Casey are visiting. Let's see here. So they started off at Earth 364. According to this note, that's the planet where instead of fruit, trees grow hot dogs. Yeah, that's all right, I guess. Jeez, they spent two days there. Okay, next they hopped over to Earth 1792. That one says no coconut, so I'd guess that's an Earth where there is no coconut. And coconut is gross, so that sounds like a good thing. Uh, let's see. Then there's Earth 567, where this says apparently fish never tastes too fishy except when it's salmon, and it's supposed to taste fishy, like salmon. Are these all just food-related? Okay, uh, after that, there's this one. Earth 248 that says, No Hitler, semicolon, several Mussolinis. Sort of a would-you-rather type of planet. Looks like they scheduled just a few hours there in case things didn't work out. Then they're back to food stuff, sort of. Earth 55, no men, only women, wearing pants considered rude, plus good sushi place near where we are staying. 
Then a whole week at Earth 98, whereas it says too much beer and pills can't kill you. That one was Jason, I'm guessing. Next, the guy's headed over to Earth 12 through 1368. That one just has two words scribbled next to it. It says no farts, typically juvenile from the dynamic duo there. Let's see. Then Earth 3065. Avatar never filmed. And then below where that's written, it says note, as if the thing above it wasn't a note. But anyway, it says note, colon, bring DVD of Avatar, get rich. All right, good luck with that. Then there's a whole slew of beer planets. Earth 5,423, rains beer. Earth 84,007, pee beer. That sounds questionable. Earth 14, all hot dogs come with free beer chaser. Another two days there. Man, these guys are really into hot dogs. Let's see, Earth 5,652, hot dog, sushi, and beer trees. Earth 912, flight rings have been invented, and in the clouds there are bars with great happy hour specials like cheap beer and free hot dogs, half off sushi until 6 p.m. Earth 63,007, 90210, never went off the air. Note, again it says note. Note, bring plenty of hot dogs and beer to catch up on last 16 seasons. Great sushi place walking distance from hotel. Oh, and then there's an alternate. It looks like in case the show takes a dip in quality, they could go to Earth 63008 where it says, Frasier still on air. Note, bring beer and dogs. Okay, sushi place walking distance from hotel. And nearing the end here, oh, it's a nice one, Earth 20,001. It says no racism, especially no racist talking octopuses. Oh, I like that one. Oh, okay, and then it says, Races found equality through mutual hate of coconut. Planet celebrates end of racism and destruction of last coconut every year, April 28, with hot dogs, beer, and sushi. And then lastly, Earth 3, which just says, what happens on President Jennifer Lawrence Planet stays on President Jennifer Lawrence Planet. And I'm led to assume Jennifer Lawrence is president and everything is generally crazy fun. Well, if they survive, the boys will be back um, next month. I hope you all had a great spring break. Pests, 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 pests. How do you keep pests away from you and your stuff? Gentleman's Mills knows all about pest control, but they ain't telling, only selling. But they are telling what they're selling. Right now, in fact, here are some of Gentleman's Mills' most spectacular pest deterrent products and services. Number one, Low Residency Pest Scholars Society. Sure, this independent all-pest school encourages pests to do their best and employs several licensed and trained educators to help them reach their tip-top potential, but look closely. After a few years, doesn't self-doubt and ennui start to surface? Don't they ask themselves the purpose of such scholarship? Slowly, slowly, oh so slowly, these pests lose the will to learn, and with it, years later, the will to live meaningfully. 
which dovetails nicely into the will to live in general, and the pests take their own lives. Number two, Saccharomites. Offer this giant wooden Aztec pyramid to your termites so they fill up on pyramid before they even get a chance to mow down on your support beams. Number three, many, many, many literal pests. Rather than conceding to your infestation, ask for delivery of Gentleman's Mill's high quantity pest shipment. With this many pests, you'll watch your overcrowded vermin struggle to find enough resources, begin backstabbing and power plays merely to delay their inevitable fate a bit longer than their fellow pests. In the final days, we predict the few remaining pest cannibal gladiator champions will be too fat to escape your able stompings. Number four, make the pest of it. Tired of that quick pest outrunning you day after day? Invite a Gentleman's Mills co-founder into your household to dress the pest in the costume of an inspirational character of your choosing. You might not be able to catch him, so we help you appreciate him. Job, Whale, Beach, Bono, and Mother Teresa costumes all come at a discount from the full $4 price. Credit card must be held by the other Gentleman's Mills co-founder as a security deposit while the co-founder is in your employ. Conditions apply, including that you must offer the employed co-founder full benefits, including health and dental insurance, paid paternity leave, and tuition reimbursement. Number five, port and paint. Scared your noble guests will look down on you for your homes being overrun with rodents, insects, and fowls of the air? We show up ready to entertain with four gallons of port wine and buckets of painting supplies. We try to teach each guest to paint a painting between gulps and pledge to use every attention grab at our disposal if we catch someone's eyes straying away from the canvas. You can't be rid of pests before tonight. You can only bring in the best in the business to help keep them unnoticed, even if it means burning your house to the ground. Number six, scare pest. Pests of all types will flee in terror from this false man in tattered garments. He hangs from a wooden stake driven into the earth and gazes eerily forward, seeing nothing, speaking never. Even you might catch a fright, and then what? Will you wonder if you're a pest too, if you've been a pest this whole time? It's a question worth considering, although it may drive some to madness. Number seven, dissension of the pests. Don your pest costume, shipped express from the gentleman's tailor, and spend days lying among the pests and whispering untruths and dark lies about the pest leader. Hope for your words to create a critical mass following, but if the pests remain loyal, begin funneling your bribe money through the gentleman with whom you've pre-registered a credit card for automatic withdrawal. They stand ready to take action on your day of need to win over key influential pests with dollars in ways your words fell neuter. Number eight, Gentleman's Mills friend or foe ID flashcards, a good memorization tool the dandy picked up in his days in the service. When you recruit neighborhood kids to help battle the pests, these cards help your little lieutenants keep straight which varmints need dealt with and which neighborhood items are benign. Number nine, Total Recall Pest Control Edition. This DVD of Total Recall is less DVD and more DDT. Number 10, Termitey Turkey for Tots. Our classic Thanksgiving centerpiece has been repurposed as a pest deterrent. Simply place any termites you find on your property inside this large transparent glass turkey and sleep easy knowing they'll never bother you again unless someone smashes the turkey open with a hammer. And who would do that? You've got the only hammer in the house, right? Here under your pillow. Where's the hammer? 
Number 11, Pest of the Year Certificate. Subtly encourage the most ambitious pest in your house to rest on his laurels with Gentleman's Mills Pest of the Year Certificate. Number 12, Mouth Membrane. Insert this membrane into your mouth to allow you to eat pests without making contact with them at any time. Dispose of latex immediately upon 30th use or in the event of heavy wear. Mouth membrane sold as is, not recommended for nursing mothers. Number 13, Pest Prom Prank Promise. Crush your pests by sending them to prom under the pretense of meeting a major hottie at the dance for a night of hot, hot romance, only to be stood up and left alone swaying on the dance floor, tears all down their tiniest of cummerbunds. These pests don't even want to be alive, Mom! Number 14, Termike the Terror. If there's one thing Termite hates, it's other termites, and he shows his displeasure by biting them while they're biting wood grains. Termite is at it again. Youch! Number 15, Pest Pages. We rounded up all the hottest pests. Pests can't resist looking at our website. By the time you wipe the ant drool off your screen, they're halfway to a city they wouldn't otherwise move to. Number 16, Slipknot Pest Edition. First you mask them, then they rock. Over enough time, all participating pests will die of old age, leaving your house pest-free. Number 17, Rat Poison. Look on with delight as mice read the packaging and then greedily consume, believing themselves to be invulnerable. Number 18, Angered Gentlemen's Quarrel with Pests. This white glove is a bit large to be smacking your pests with, but at times you must put your foot down. Number 19, Vintage Pest Dueling Set. One pistol each goes to you in a pest. After six paces and a turn, only one of you will be walking away. Number 20, Venus Fly Tarp. That isn't a typo. Number 21, The Gentleman's Mills Food Chain Subscription. Ready to put an end to your dust mite and sand flea infestation once and for all? Each week we bring to your house a creature one tiny step up the food chain. Only two years and you'll be sharing a house with a tiger. At the end of month 24, you'll be toasting your pinnacle predator's last step in exterminating your pests naturally and without chemicals. Number 22, Meat Preference Pest Eradication System. Your purchase funds an international campaign pushing meat as a manly food or a feminine foodie's treat. Watch as the earth grows overrun with huge feeder cattle which devour greenery and convert it to toxic methane gas which makes earth uninhabitable for pests. 23. A better day for pests. The world's most humane removal system, this nine-figure spaceship launches your pests from this doomed planet toward the moon and comes equipped with a fully functioning self-contained ecosystem sufficient for your pests to carry life onward, immune from we humans' failure on earth. And now a special word from Gentleman's Mills co-founder, The Dandy, with a pet product we failed to cover last month. Pet Robot Fish, Pet Robot Fish, Pet Pet Robot Fish. I'm The Dandy with an exciting new offer, Pet Robot Fish. When Pet Robot Fish arrives to your door, simply sign for the package, register Pet Robot Fish online by accepting our terms of use, and then program in your Wi-Fi password into Pet Robot Fish. Set him in his tank, and you'll enjoy and delight in watching him go into side-by-side mode, swim up and down. (laughs) If you even stay there long enough, he'll come to the top so you can pet, pet, robot fish. In the morning, you may wake to find little footprints exiting the tank, walking around your house, and then returning to the tank. Depending on your house's ventilation, they might be little wet footprints. 
This is where Pet Robot Fish collects data throughout your household to improve your user experience during the daylight hours. Pet Pet Robot Fish! Close your eyes, lie down, relax. Did you know that many people actually find it possible to trigger specific feelings by watching other people's experiences? Even if those experiences are just pretend, as is the case with movies, scripted television shows, and, I hate to say it, so-called reality shows. These people just want attention, and I know I'm not the first one to say it, but I figure if I keep saying it, I may still have the honor of being the last one to say it. But listen, considering some of the rough patches we've been through recently, maybe you would be more soothed by just sitting there and watching someone else have a relaxing time. You find yourself in a comfy chair wearing comfy clothes, watching a television screen that's a comfy distance from your eyes, and the volume of which is set at a comfy level. You nestle down under a comfy blanket and stuff a handful of the comfiest popcorn you've ever bitten into your mouth. On the screen, you see a man named Fortinbras, like the two characters from Hamlet. Fortinbras is idling on a narrow strip of deep green grass between two parallel burbling brooks. He dangles his fingers in one brook and the unsocked toes of his sandaled feet in the other. A man who refuses to choose between two parallel burbling brooks. That's the kind of man through whom you're going to be vicariously experiencing peace and relaxation today. Note his face with drowsy eyes and sparkling lips. Someone has sprinkled flower petals on his billowy t-shirt. Fortinbras sits up and produces an indeterminate woodwind instrument from his knapsack and plays a single fascinating note. You get up to use the restroom. Well, okay, fine, but what you're watching is happening live and this TV doesn't have the technology needed to pause live TV, so you're going to miss whatever Fortinbras does while you're in the bathroom. You don't seem to care. You go to the bathroom and close the door behind you. Then you close the lid on the toilet and sit down and just stare into space. You didn't even have to go to the bathroom at all. You're choosing to hide in the bathroom and watch nothing rather than vicariously experience Fortinbras's peaceful reveries. Okay, be that way. But meanwhile, Fortinbras has now rolled onto his stomach and he's watching eight ants play tug of war with a blade of grass and the side with the seven ants is handily beating the side with the one ant. In fact, it doesn't really look like tug of war at this point. It looks like seven ants dragging one ant around by a blade of grass. Go ants, whisper shouts Fortinbras, cheering for all the ants at once. He just wants everyone to have fun. And as far as he can tell, that's exactly what's happening. Somehow you haven't bored yourself out of the bathroom yet. You're still not curious about what Fortinbras is up to? That's insane. I'm reclining here on my bed on Thursday night, April 28th, 2016, sipping Dr. Pepper that's been watered down by ice melt, listening to The Body, waiting for Cousin Brent to come home so I can watch him play Dark Souls 3 in the basement while I eat yellow corn tortilla chips dipped in something called Sassy Salsa Dip, and I'm typing this visualization exercise for your benefit. And while I was at work today, I came up with this innovative idea to do this one in the third person. To do this whole thing where you'd be watching someone else have a peaceful experience. And how do you respond? You sit in the bathroom and do nothing. You miss out on all of it. It's like you think if you just sit in there long enough, I'll give up. 
And now it's 3.40 a.m. on the 29th of April, and I'm back at it, just trying to do my duty. But wouldn't I rather be firing up a conspiracy theory podcast, turning off my light and drifting off to sleep to the crazed ramblings of the world's foremost expert on the subject of which there's only one total expert in the world? Of course I would. But I can't, because I have to try to tell you what you're observing Fortinbras do on the TV, but you're still in the bathroom, sitting on the edge of the tub now. You found some nail clippers in the medicine cabinet, so you've decided this is the perfect time for some personal grooming. Meanwhile, Fortinbras is riding a whimsical bicycle back and forth on a fallen log that spans both burbling brooks, but at such a languid pace, it's astonishing that his lack of substantial forward momentum doesn't just cause him to topple right over with a delighted little shriek and an amusing flop of his mouse-brown bowl cut. There's a basket on the front of his bike, and in that basket are two books, one called The Miserly Cricket, a novel, and the other called Understanding the Miserly Cricket, a novel, a guide. You clip your toenails shorter than you prefer just to fill more time, trying to wait me out, thinking you can outlast both Fortinbras and, more importantly, me. I continually glance down at the word count in the bottom corner of my laptop monitor, reminding myself that I still need to write and record an intro and finish transcribing the Gentleman's Mills products and record that, too, before Saturday morning. Fortinbras blows up a lime green balloon and twists it into the shape of a balloon animal, making a balloon animal. It's so meta, giggles Fortinbras, blowing kisses to himself by kissing his palm and then, instead of blowing, he inhales sharply and then quickly puckers his lips so that the kiss lands squarely upon them. Looking under the sink, you discover three folded bath towels, guest towels. A sinister smile creeps over your face and you run yourself a hot, hot bath. I'm fading. It's after 4 a.m. now and I just cracked a thousand words. It's time to consider starting to bring this thing to a close, but it's been a total disaster. Nothing's gone how I planned it. The only way things could get worse would be the introduction, this late in the game, of a fourth perspective which, now that I've mentioned it, seems destined to appear. Parker Massowin, the actor who played Fortinbras, will be saddened if he hears this, if he hears that his portrayal of Fortinbras failed to hold your attention for even one minute. He will, provided someone brings all this to his attention, undoubtedly do what he always does when he gets sad, stress eat a pound of granulated sugar and then stress brush his teeth with a pound of toothpaste. He will try to find you on social media so he can suggest that you give his portrayal of Fortinbras another try, but this time without the unrealistic expectation that watching it will fill you with inner peace, which, hey, that's what I said it would do. He'll be trying to cut me out of this equation. Well, what do I care? It's 11.05 p.m. on Friday night now. I still haven't written the intro or finished transcribing the Gentleman's Mills products, and I've decided, based on the amount of happy splashing, whistling, and foghorn impersonations I hear coming from the bathroom, you're not coming out. Not by the end of this visualization exercise, anyway, which is imminent. Fortinbras pulls his prized possession from his knapsack. It's the cupule from an enormous acorn, so large that he can wear it like a cat, which he does. Come out of the bathroom and look at me, he cries, his voice a little bit heartbreaking. I look like a human acorn. Come enjoy my antics or Parker, the man currently portraying me, will be sad, provided he finds out. And you there in the tub, naked as a jaybird, yes, but cleaner than any jaybird has ever been, you just stay out of it. 
You don't even try to engage with this high-concept mess. You pretend your knee is the back of a sea monster and you use it to capsize a toy boat. Then you make another foghorn sound. Alright, well, I've got other stuff to do, believe it or not. So let the piece of, I don't know, checking out of a messy situation before it can get any of its stink on you go with you this month. Even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the 20th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Casey Baye, Grang Lynch, Chris Nichols, Andy Poppenfoos, Ben Bird, Cayman Bird, KT McVeigh, Steve Tartaglioni, and Aaron Eikenberry for the contributions written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey Baye, Chris Nichols, and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdrent at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those, too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back in a month with episode 21 of Out of All Doors. 